Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars podcast. This is a an interview I've been planning to do for a number of months now, but it is timely. And the reason it's timely is that there is a fantastic new book coming out very soon, which I am going to take a punt on and say that we are going to be describing this as important and eye-opening. I have made my guest blush even before we started with the first question, but that's the high level of anticipation with which I hold this book. There is a book forthcoming called The Horrible Peace, British Veterans and the End of the Napoleonic Wars. It's written, written by the brilliant Evan Wilson. He's an associate professor in the Hattendorf Historical Centre at the US Naval War College. He is an award-winning historian. In 2018, he won the Sir Julian Cobbett Prize in Modern Naval History, and his first book was on the social history of British naval officers, 1775 to 1815. So now he's turned to the dark side. Having done the Navy, he's now turning his attention to the Army. And this is going to be a great kind of exploration of what the flaming hell, and flaming hell really is the word, happened when it came to the British Army demobilising from about 1814 onwards. Evan, it's great to see you. Welcome to the show. Um, nice to see that, you know, you're you're in good spirits and well, because when I first pitched this to you, I did pounce on you when you were severely, severely jet-lagged in the National Archives. That was deeply unfair of me. But considering the quality of what I'm expecting us to discuss over the next hours, I'm not particularly sorry about that. How are you doing? Uh, very well. Thank you for having me, Zach. I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's great to be here. I hope I can uh, live up to the to the billing. Oh, you, you're going to more than live up to the hype. I uh, obviously I look forward to doing episodes. I'm particularly looking forward to this one and also reading the book um, because I, I mean I don't pull my punches. If something's rubbish, I tell people it's rubbish. Um, this I really don't see as going to be rubbish uh, in the slightest. I, however, am going to be a bit rubbish with my first question. I'm going to do that very tedious, sort of boring, predictable thing of, so why the title? And But there's a reason why I'm going, why the title on this one? Because you've actually made this point in a recent blog post. Um, and we'll talk about where people can get your blog at the end um, and also in the show descriptors, because, you know, you're, you're kind of building um, the hype for this book and kind of giving people indicators. But you made the point you know, everybody talks about war being horrible. Yes, okay, we've got that point. 
Peace, however, sometimes can also be quite horrible. But the reasons for that might not immediately occur to people. So talk us through the, the thinking there. Sure. So the actual quote that it comes from is from uh, an article in the Times uh, just before the one year anniversary of Waterloo, in which uh, it, the Times is looking at the state of the country and saying, basically, you know, this is not going well. Things are things are grim. Uh, what if the country were sunk even lower into an abyss of ruin and unemployment and all sorts of other kind of miserable things? Uh, and then it uh, quoted um, a passage from Tacitus's histories uh, in which uh, the translation is basically, uh, I'm going to describe to you what happened after Nero died in 68 CE uh, when it was uh, things were so bad. There were all these wars and awful things, and it was horrible even in peace. And so the title comes from that phrase, horrible even in peace. And yeah, I mean, I think the first important thing to say is that like war is hell. That's fundamental. I'm not here to say that uh, war is should be glorified or or is was was better in any way. But uh, just to make the point that when wars end, especially very long wars like the Napoleonic Wars, uh, they impose enormous transition costs on the societies that fought them. So there are economic transition costs like uh, war industries. So if you ran a business or worked in a business that had, over the course of the last two decades of war, arranged itself to depend on government contracts for supplying the armed forces, then in 1815 and 1816, you were in for a very rude surprise when the government canceled your contracts, probably throwing your business uh, out of business. And so um, there are massive unemployment problems, especially in Birmingham for the armaments industry. Um, I mentioned this in the blog post, but Isambard Kingdom Brunel's father, Mark Brunel, had made a fortune selling boots to the army and they canceled his contracts for the uh, boots when the army didn't need any more new boots and he ended up in debtor's prison and eventually his uh, fancy friends bailed him out but um, there were uh, enormous transition costs on the economy budgets are slashed unemployment spikes the general sense uh, in 1815 1816 is that the country's broke and full of poor people many of them were returning servicemen um, the industrial revolution is just getting underway so it's not like you can you know go back and work in the cotton mills that's not that's not an option yet um, there are also social and sort of emotional costs involved with the end of the really long war. So uh, separated families are reunited, which can be a wonderful thing. And it's one reason why sort of fundamentally, even if this peace was horrible, it's better in that sense than, than war. Uh, but it doesn't always make for happy reunions. Um, certainly the servicemen have seen some things. Uh, domestic violence spikes in the aftermath of the war. Uh, crime spikes in the aftermath of the war. Uh, men who had a clear purpose and formed like familial bonds with their messmates on campaign or on the ship uh, were now cut off from that source of support. So from the servicemen's perspective and also from the family's perspective, uh, being reunited after the war was not necessarily always a happy affair. And then one of the things that I was uh, surprised to have my book end up talking about, I wasn't planning to do this, was some of the strategic costs of the end of the war that you think this is the beginning of Britain's greatest century. Uh, David Canadine even wrote a book called Victoria's Century, right? Talking about Queen Victoria, Victoria's Century, I get it. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it is true. This is Britain's greatest century and, and Waterloo marks the beginning of that 99 years of the Pax Britannica and all that. But for the 10 years after the war, um, this is not Britain as a global superpower. This is actually a Britain that's uh, really suffering uh, to fund its armed forces. It slashes the budgets like crazy. 
you've won this great victory. You've got an empire that you now need to protect, but you don't have any money to protect it with. And so strategically, actually, this is a surprising period of uncertainty of, I wouldn't go as far as to say horribleness, but it is certainly uh, surprisingly uh, bad for uh, the, the British strategically. There's a wars still going on in India with the Marathas, the, in Sri Lanka, uh, in South America, the revolutions are ongoing. So there's plenty of hotspots around the globe. There's real concern that there's gonna be another war with the United States after the War of 1812 ends. For the first three years after that war, Remember, that war had resolved nothing. It was status quo antebellum. So why wouldn't they go back to fighting again? So lots of reasons why sort of economic transition costs, social and emotional transition costs, and then strategic costs, why peace in 1815, 1816 was not the, the, the storybook ending that I think people had hoped for the end of the wars. I mean, that's a bit of a mic drop moment. <laughs> um, there's quite a lot for us to unpack there. Um, sure. I... There are so many directions I, I want to take this in, but I'm going to start with just the 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 obvious bit about demobilization um, in, in various facets. And one of these is I'm being unfair here because I haven't sent you this in advance. But the when you demobilize an army, you are inherently sending large numbers of individuals that you've trained in the art of killing out into the population. It, obviously, this is not the first time the British government has demobilized a force. That's a given. Every time there's a war, you have an increase in, in recruitment. And then come the end of the war, you don't need that force anymore. So you have a drawdown. But this is the, the largest army that Britain's probably had ever uh, at, at this point in time, come 1815. Is there concern amongst the government that, look, we're going to send all of these people back out into society and is there any kind of thinking about well maybe there are things we can do to offset any associated risks or is this just well look we need to save money the only way we can do that is to slash the numbers and that's exactly what we're going to do the second part this is the era of laissez-faire the government doesn't think that it's responsible for finding employment for demobilized soldiers or sailors uh, it thinks that it's best off when it gets out of the economy not when it tries to prop it up so the government is not interested in trying to solve these problems. It turns out they should be worried about sending a bunch of armed men back into society. Uh, they're not armed anymore, I guess, but they they were trained, as you say. Um, and it turns out that in the um, unrest that follows the wars, uh, there's a couple of books out there that you can find called like Waterloo to Peterloo, right? The 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 name Peterloo is always uh, obviously an echo of of Waterloo. It, that Peterloo is not the only episode of uh, major unrest in the post-war years. It's the one that's most famous, of course, but there's lots more happening. Um, and in those riots in 1816, 1817, 1818, a couple of attempted coups, things like that, some, some real serious stuff, um, demobilized soldiers actually are training uh, many of the protesters to be more disciplined. So they go out onto the moors to drill, to um, instead of with muskets, they're drilling with like long pitchforks and things like that. They line up just like they're uh, going to be in a cavalry square, right, to, to face the, the oncoming um, still in-service veterans of the wars. So they're on both sides of the of the conflict. And uh, so, yeah, th there are real concerns about uh, putting these men back into society, but the government isn't in a position really to do much about it. And then and the result is that uh, you've got protesters on both sides, protesters and the people trying to suppress them that have military training. Um, and that makes uh the post-war protests particularly violent and particularly uh difficult yeah i mean this is the irony isn't it that you know suddenly the the threat of revolution 
in some respects abates because Napoleon's defeated, the, the clock is turned back um, in France, and you've got this kind of triumph of Ancien Regime over the, the revolutionary ideals. And yet the disaffection hasn't gone anywhere. The discontent doesn't go anywhere. And, and what you've done is given these people some techniques which they can potentially employ to uh, be rather more effective in their process, should they feel inclined. Um, we'll rewind a little bit and just talk about the the, the very early stages when the news breaks of the first piece. Um, so we're talking Napoleon resigning, what becomes his exile to Elba. News arrives, um, certainly in, in southern France, um, immediately after the Battle of Toulouse, which therefore makes Toulouse a completely pointless battle because the war was over by the time it had been fought, but nobody knew that at the time. Um, but the thing that has always staggered me, and yes, people, crime and punishment, I'm very sorry to bore you with this, but that's where I'm going with this. It's desertion statistics. Um, and I do love a good desertion statistic conversation. When you look at the the overall statistics, the point at which they absolutely rocket, and we're talking levels not seen at any other point in the British Army during the Peninsula War, is April and May 1814. And we're talking triple, quadruple, maybe even five times the statistics that you'd get on average at other points in the war. I've got my theories on that that I could bore people with, but I want your take because you're the person who's really looked into this. What do you think accounts for it? I'm not sure that's true that I think you've actually looked into this more than I have, but I'll, I'll give it a try. Uh, so I did, I saw the same research that suggests that the desertion spike absolutely seems to be a clear uh, marker. Uh, my understanding of desertion is that, you know, war morale is, is the uh, common thread across uh, desertions, um, but that can be caused by lots of different things. Why would you have low morale in uh, April and May of 1814? You think the war is over. This would be a time to be happy. Well, I, as I saw it, um, probably a couple of different things happening. Uh, one would be rumors. So remember that the ordinary soldier subsists on a diet of rumors, knows very little officially about what's happening in the world, much less in his own, you know, in the army that he's in. So I suspect that in April and May, 1814, there were tons of rumors about where the regiment was going to be sent next because the war was over in Europe. They didn't know it was gonna come back again, but the war was over in Europe, but it was not over in the United States. And lots of regiments were threatened, and then lots of regiments did get redeployed from France to Canada or to New Orleans or to the other campaigns there. And you can put yourselves in the shoes of a, a serviceman in Toulouse, having just gotten really drunk, having you know won the great battle and ended the war, and Napoleon's gone, and everyone's proclaimed Louis the Eighteenth the king, and they're saying, great, now go fight some Americans in New Orleans. I can imagine why you might say, I don't want any part of that. Thank you very much. Um, it could be that your uh, service enlistment time was coming due and you decided this is, I don't want to risk it. So there are some memoirs that talk about um, soldiers who were like three weeks from the end of their enlistment period when they found out that they were going to be redeployed to somewhere where you can't get back home in three weeks. So you're necessarily going to have to extend the enlistment period. Um, maybe the army would be kind unless you stay behind, but maybe not. So uh, I think that that's probably what's happening. Then there's also the always the sort of wives and girlfriends question. You know, had they uh, found someone in Toulouse in April and May of 1814 and decided they wanted to stick around, perhaps it's pretty far from the channel. So it's not like you're going to get home anytime soon. Um, so those are those are my best guesses. I have a lot in the book about separation from the mess and how difficult that was 
uh, for both soldiers and sailors. Um, and perhaps that's a factor here too, but but that would be my my stab at it. Maybe you can uh, fill, fill me in. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you on, on all of those points. Um, I forget the name of the individual whose memoir is incredibly candid about how the night before New Orleans, they basically spend the entire night trying to find, um, I think they end up trying to find Pakenham in the end because they do not want to fight that pigging battle. Their term of enlistment is up. They got no desire to risk their lives. And this is a really interesting kind of counterpoint in all of these conversations that we have about how generally morale was very high. A lot of commitment amongst these troops to each other's survival. And yet this idea, hey, why don't you just go and risk it a little bit more? That They don't want to ride their luck. <laughs> the preservation instinct does kick in. Um, and I, I think you also hit the nail on the head with the wives and girlfriends uh, comment, which is the other thing I wanted to ask you about there, uh, on all of this, because it's always, I don't want to quite use the word angered me because I don't like to bring too much emotion into historical study. I always think it's a little bit unhealthy. Um, but it certainly bugged me that the army's attitude to unofficial wives seems to be, from what I've read, we don't care, they're unofficial, they're not on the battalion strength, therefore we have no obligation, we're leaving them here, we won't be paying their passage. If you want to pay their passage, well then sure, by all means, but we don't have, we don't pay you half the time, so good luck affording that passage, say your goodbyes, you're never going to see them again, which in turn is a very good motivator for people to say, well, stuff this for a game of soldiers, pun entirely intended. Um, yes, feel free to groan, listeners. Um, and then they disappear into the hills. Um, and, and you even get comments about this from people like Costello, don't you? About how actually they don't, that those individuals who do that aren't judged because there's this understanding of why they would do that, especially when the war's over, as you say, in Europe. You know, the, the regiment's not under immediate threat. So actually, if there's a moment to up sticks and disappear, um, that that really is the moment. Is what I've said there about, you know, this kind of abandonment and genuinely tearing families apart, because that's what we're talking about here. You know, you, you don't get the opportunity to officially bring your your girlfriend onto the battalion strength because of the limits on what's allowed. You nonetheless strike up a family and then you're meant to just leave them all in southern France? Is that genuinely sort of the army's um, rationale? Yes. I think the worst case that I found uh, came from Christine Haynes' research. Uh, she's got a great book called All for Our Friends, the Enemies, about the army of occupation. So after uh, Waterloo, they the allies decide we don't want to make that mistake again. So they put, you know, more than 100,000 troops in uh, northeastern France under Wellington's command and 30,000 of them are British. When the 30,000 British troops in the army of occupation are sent home in 1818, so after three years of living in rural France, you can imagine that there are a number of families. Um, Christine found that 5,000 women came with the army of occupation. This is out of 30,000 troops. So 5,000 women came with 30,000 troops to the Channel Coast, having been promised that they were going to get wives, wives in England, right? bring the kids, do the whole thing. And uh, not all of them have been promised marriage, but at least that, that was sort of the assumption. And many of them were abandoned pregnant in France um, because of everything you just said. Yeah, so it's uh, it's not a happy story for sure. Um, very little of the army's history with its 
uh, with the women who follow the camp uh, is um, Janine Hurley-Eman has some really good stuff on this too that that has been um, really eye-opening. So yeah, it's no, you're right. It's not not a, not a fun story. Not not something that anybody wants to be touting. I don't want to defend the army, but there is a bureaucratic rationale, of course, to it. Why that costs money? Don't want to spend the money. Okay, but it's heartless. It absolutely is. It's and it very much taps into this kind of horrible piece theme, right? You know, the it's yeah. No, I, I'm going to come out and say it. it does make me angry. It's one of the few points where I get emotionally invested in this period, um, and I get angry. Bizarre. I don't get angry about flogging. I do get angry about abandoning people's families on the dockside in France. Um, there you have it, folks. Uh, that is that is my my Achilles heel. That's my trigger. Um, so we all know, of course, with hindsight, eighteen fourteen isn't the end that everyone thinks it's gonna be. So, on a practical level, how does Napoleon's return from Elba suddenly? affect everything because it's your cat amongst the pigeons moment right you're making all of these plans we're going to demobilize these tricks we're going to redeploy these here and suddenly oh bother suddenly this war in europe really isn't over and the single biggest threat has re-emerged on our doorstep just as we're re-juggling you know we've had that time to start to redeploy so how much of a, a change does this end up being or is there isn't there a enough time for this to fundamentally lead to a change in policy it just kind of ends up being this blip so the first thing i'd say is um i read that framing of what happened in 1815 all the time and that's accurate insofar as it goes i don't like that framing though because i think it's important to say that the british were largely maybe not entirely but certainly to a significant degree responsible for napoleon's return from elba and that it's easy to blame Louis XVIII, who didn't know what he was doing, sure. It's easy to blame the Tsar for sending him to Elba. That's also true. But there's a lot of blame on the British side. I wrote an article about this in the Mariner's Mirror called The Monster from Elba, in which I pick apart all the mistakes that Britain made in the course of getting Napoleon to Elba, what they did when he was there, and then when he came back. So, yeah, it's it's an oopsie moment, but it's also like, no, no, you did this to yourself. This was your own fault. And one of the points I make in the book is that one of the reasons why Napoleon was able to come back is that the Navy just didn't keep him on Elba. I mean, you'd think that the British Navy could keep him on an island, and he did not. They did not. And um, that's the Navy's fault on a tactical level. But it's also an operational and a strategic failure because there weren't enough ships around to keep him there, because the Navy was demobilizing and sending every other available ship to the war in North America. And also because Castlereagh didn't give good instructions to the people on the island about whether Napoleon was a head of state, which he was, or a prisoner. Everyone in Europe thought that he was a prisoner, except for the people who were supposed to be imprisoning him, who treated him as a head of state. So there's some really comical episodes here, like uh, the ships that are stationed in the Mediterranean, which have been way cut down, so they've, they've been basically taken off station, but there are a few still there. All the ships are issued with portraits of Napoleon so that they can identify him in case they come across him at sea, which is a really weird thing. But of course, everybody who's got a portrait of Napoleon on their ship is immediately accused of being a secret Bonapartist because they think, oh, you've got the portrait on your ship, right? So it's there's a lot of comical episodes like that. But anyway, so yeah, it, oopsie, that's part of it, but also like actual British mistakes that cause this to happen. It's what my next blog post is about. So you'll you'll see more about that soon. But um Anyways, yes. So Napoleon's back. 
what does the army do about all this? Because this is clearly the army's responsibility now that the Navy has blown it and let Napoleon come back. The army's got to pick up the pieces. Okay, so there are about 36,000 men in the low countries that have been sent there under Sir Thomas Graham. This will be familiar to people who know the Waterloo story. I'm not uh, providing new information, but you can sort of divide the army's uh, scramble here into two, um, trying to solve two different problems. One is the quality problem and one is the quantity problem. So the quality problem is that the troops that they sent to the the low countries are bad. They are not good at being soldiers. So they need better soldiers. That's the first problem. One way to solve that problem is to send Wellington. So they do that. That makes a difference. They also get lucky. So the 52nd Light Infantry, which is one of the better regiments in the army, was supposed to go to North America. And it tried to go to North America twice. But bad weather turned the transports around and they had to go back to port. And then they found out that Napoleon had escaped. So they said, hang on, don't go to North America, go to Belgium. So that was important. Um, and then there's the quantity problem. So they just need literally any warm body will be helpful in some way. Uh, and that includes stripping Ireland of troops, which is a big risk, uh, certainly in an era in which Irish loyalty could not be counted on and had to be held down by force, right? So uh, they, and Castlereagh actually writes to Wellington saying, basically, I'm going to send you everything from Ireland. Uh, we hope it's going to be okay. Like, don't blow it. So, Okay. So they they uh, they strip Ireland. They're hoping that troops coming back from Canada can then garrison Ireland, but there's going to be a window in there when they have fewer than they want. Um, they hope that the expedition coming back from New Orleans is going to help. So that's another part of it. Uh, and then basically they extend short service enlistments. So all these uh, soldiers that thought that they were ready to enter the peace and that it was, you know, that was their time was up. They're told, actually, no, you're going to be here for uh, longer. They tried to turn around troop convoys whenever they could. So there's one headed to Bermuda that gets turned around and, and sent back. Um, and then they also, Wellington wanted pieces of his Peninsular Army, which had been, which had sort of ended up in Portugal that hadn't quite made it all the way home yet. He wanted to get those in, but they couldn't get them in time. So that didn't work. They do have a ton of gunpowder. So the, the Ordnance Board manages to get 42,000 barrels of gunpowder uh, dumped on the beach at Ostend, which is uh, helpful. They only needed 560 or something, 69, I think, at, at Waterloo. So like way overkill on, on the gunpowder. Um, yeah, but they just dump them on the beach at Ostend and, and expect the army to figure it out. It's kind of like a reverse Dunkirk. So Dunkirk is just down the beach. It's like 50 kilometers away. So instead of removing the, the troops from uh, from Dunkirk, they're literally just throwing them on the beach and hoping that the, that the army can figure it out. So they did. The result, of course, is famously not a very British army and not a very good army. It's a, it's a European army. Only 46% of it was made up of normal troops in the British army. Uh, establishment so british troops plus the king's german legion and then everything else is like brunswickers and hanoverians and nassauers and things like that so um yeah it's a it's a ragtag bunch wellington's not very happy with it uh of course famously which is a, a good way to deflect criticism in the event that it gone wrong but nevertheless i think it's legitimate to say this this was not the best so that's my very long answer to how did the army respond to news of napoleon's return uh it was complicated but it messed with a lot of plans for demobilization, for sure. Yeah, I can well imagine. I mean, the army is just, an, well, the British government, to be fair, because it, it's done through acts of parliament, but it, or at least my understanding is that it's done back through acts of parliament. Certainly that's the case in 1813. Um, the, the government is pretty kind of ruthless in terms of this extension of, of service in a really casual way. So in 1813, for folks who aren't familiar, the, the British... <laughs> government just decides we're passing this act that says that you might have enlisted for seven years but actually you're staying until this war is over and no you don't have a choice 
which is a, a fundamentally a breaking of contract. But because it's handed down by the government, it's it it's there's nothing you can do about it. They they literally wrote a law to make this happen. Is it the same story come eighteen fifteen? There's another act of parliament, or do they? Yeah. So uh, I have never served in the military. Um, I have no military experience. I am employed by the U.S. Navy right now. Uh, I do not speak for the U.S. Navy, by the way. All my stuff here is is not not official government stuff. But anyways, I'm surrounded by active duty military officers, and when I came across this extending of the short service enlistments, I thought, wow, just like, I was like, oh man, that's just brutal. How could they possibly do this? Just pass along. You say, oh, you're, if you talk to anybody who's in the military today, they'll say, yep. And I mean, it, it's true that if you sign up for military service, you get used to the big, big government basically telling you that that plan you had that you thought you were going to do this, you're going to do that now. And it's going to be different and you're just going to have to deal with it and off you go so you know there, there are ways that as you go up in rank you can have a little more control in, in different places and things like that but um yeah uh military service this is a this is not just 1813 and 1815 in britain not just about the extension of the napoleonic wars it is a, i think a universal truth in military service that when you when you put on the uniform you have to be willing you have to be ready for whatever the government says you're going to do I mean, it's kind of less no plan survives first contact with the enemy and more sort of no plan survives contact with your own government from the sounds of things, right? That's right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, so post-1815, you've got a new set of priorities. You know, this time the, uh, the <laughs> Europe learns its lesson, right? Don't stick Napoleon anywhere near Europe. Let's stick him. In. It's a very sort of Prometheus moment, right? Chain him to a rock in the middle of nowhere on this godforsaken island, he's never getting out of there again. Um, so they don't have that to deal with. What they do have is a new set of priorities, though. Um, you made the point really nicely. There's a war still going on in India. Britain's still sort of hellbent on taking what it can out there. You've got a whole series of colonies that it's grabbed um, through varying means um, and then doesn't decide to hand back for varying reasons. Um, you've got conflicts as you've said you know breaking out in south america traditionally an area where britain has kind of looked with a bit of jealous interest because of a lack of access to those markets so what are the new priorities for the army post-1815 and how does that impact on the experience of the rank and file who stay in there are broadly speaking three priorities for the army after 1815 the first one is the army of occupation uh, don't make the same mistake they made in 1814. You've got to prioritize that first. That's where Wellington is. That's where 30,000 good troops are. That's what you make the French pay for. So it's free. That's the probably priority one would be to say that the army of occupation. Um, the second priority is uh, suppressing domestic unrest, uh, which is not something that would be necessarily easy to get any of the ministers at the time to come out and say explicitly, but it's certainly that they, they talked around it in the notes. So uh, the Duke of York wrote a couple of memos in 1866 and 18 to try to explain why he had allocated this many troops to this garrison and this many troops to that garrison. And throughout the memo, you can see him th thinking the soldiers are there, not because we're expecting some other European power to come take this garrison away from us, but because we need to suppress any unrest that happens in that garrison and the most important of those garrisons is england is the home countries um so uh they build a lot of barracks after the wars inland to try to separate the soldiers from the pubs if you station soldiers in pubs 
it's a good news, bad news situation, usually bad news, but uh, it was cheaper. Um, they op start a rotational system through Ireland. So the regiments basically go to Ireland for about two years, maybe three. They deal with the usual troubles in Ireland and then they get out of there before they you know, get too uh, bloodied. Um, there's a possible rebellion building, brewing in Scotland in 1920 that they're really worried about. So they got to make sure they have enough soldiers there. There are riots in London periodically, starting with the Cornwall riots before Waterloo even in, in 1815. Um, so, uh, sailors have gone on strike in Newcastle and shut down the port in 1815 and again in 1819 after Peterloo. So ordinary soldiers are sent all around uh, the home islands to try to um, keep the peace, so to speak. There's no domestic police force. Uh, well, there are various private domestic police forces, but there's not a proper you know, metropolitan police yet until I think 1829. So the soldiers are the uh, are the first line of uh, of call. So at, if a if there's a riot, right, a magistrate would try to um, summon some citizens who were not rioting to help them suppress it. He would uh, make them constables and hope that they could put it down. But usually that didn't work. So we had to call the army in. And then when the army shows up, the army's not happy about this. Nobody wants soldiers in front of a, a riot. They're not trained for it. They don't have uh, non-lethal force, right? You can sort of use the butt of your rifle, but you can hurt somebody pretty badly with that if you, if you do it right. Um, so the soldiers are unhappy doing this. It's a miserable job. Some of the veterans, uh, so um, Harry Smith, for example, one of the great veterans of the Peninsular War, who goes on to fight wars on four different continents, says that his post-war service was the worst service he had uh, in his entire career in the army because it was just this sort of miserable, you know, counterinsurgency basically, but at home. Uh, and and it was, a, it was a very unhappy time for, for a lot of soldiers. I'm obviously unhappy for all the people rioting too. Like, I mean, that, there's a flip side of this, right? Then the final issue is garrisoning the empire. So yeah, you got to send soldiers all around uh, to do that. The planters in the West Indies, uh, basically, I don't know if they, I don't know if I want to use the right word here, but um, they tell the government, uh, we will withdraw political and financial support for your activities if you do not send us X number of soldiers. And so the Duke of York says, okay, here is X number of soldiers to keep the uh, white supremacy in place in the West Indies. So that's so, some of what soldiers are doing there too. And then, as I mentioned, yeah, there, there are wars at the periphery of the empire. Um, my book sort of winds up at the uh, Anglo-Burmese War of 1824-25-26, uh, when you can finally start to see the economic situation has improved and there's enough recruitment happening back in the home counties to home countries to uh, send new troops out to the to the theater. But yeah, there's plenty of hotspots all around the world to be sent to. And there are also some really dull spots to be sent to where basically you just sit there and hope you don't get malaria. So uh, I, I'm not sure that it would, if you, you're asking like, what was the actual experience of the rank and file after 1815? I mean, I don't think anybody wanted to be fighting in Spain again, but at least, I don't know, there, there was at least a, a, a clearer purpose about fighting in Spain than there was if you're stuck on some remote island uh, worried about mosquitoes or yeah not. it's funny i was going to ask about exactly that issue and what you're saying about how york gets forced into this situation of no you are going to send some troops to to garrison the west indies um because as i'm sure i've talked about in the past you know that's the place where regiments sort of get sent to die this is a place where you like to send your penal units um when you draft people straight into the army out of the old bailey courtroom because they'll get malaria and then they'll die and you haven't spent all of this vast amounts of time sort of recruiting and training and all the rest of it um 
So how much sort of twisting of an arm is required to make him make that judgment in, yes, okay, we, we are going to send the troops to, to, to prop up um, the, the colonial regime? It's, it's hard to say. I think the memo is, um, the series of memos are structured as a, I'm going to go through every garrison in the empire and I'm going to say, this is how many troops I think we should have in that garrison. This is how many troops we actually have in this garrison. And this is how many troops you're saying I can have in this garrison. So there's a sort of three-part structure to it. And um, he doesn't have a whole lot to say about the West Indies because it's clear that his hands are basically tied with the size of the garrison there. Um, nobody wants to be sent there, of course. Um, there's been some recent research done that suggests that the death rates weren't actually as high as you'd assume they would be, uh, but the popular perception of the death rates were high enough that it would cause people to say, I don't want any part of that. Um, so yeah, you know, garrison duty is, that's what soldiers do. That's that's normal standard operating procedure, right? In peacetime, that's what a, that's what an army's for. So in, the, in that sense, you'd say for the rank and file, it's just to return to normalcy and that's that's fine. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a dull, existence full of alcoholism and disease right you know it's grim it absolutely is how does all of this differ for the navy then because you know fleets still have to be mothballed that that's nothing new um nelson being the one that everybody loves to turn to and his unending fight for a command as you know people rotate in and out of half pay uh do you get a, a similar problem because I mean, the Navy recruitment is a bit different, right? And that you've got impressment, which is literal inscription, uh, conscription, sorry, um, albeit sort of kidnapped conscription. Uh, so it's even worse. So you've got a population that in some respects you'd expect would be quite happy to finally be released from basically indentured labor. But the flip side is, of course, you now don't have a job. You're now in a market where you're never going to you're going to struggle because it's not just you who's being let go. Suddenly all of these people with seafaring experience are being let go. Um, and, you know, as we're going to come on to discuss that there's these big problems in terms of aftercare. So what's the situation like there and, and what is the Navy focusing on? Is this very much kind of cut the numbers? We need enough to patrol the, the highways, the seaways, um, and that's it. Or are there other priorities at play? No, you've, you've hit a lot of the key points. Um, there are, broadly speaking, three different components of the Navy that would need addressing. So there's the ships, there's the men, and there's the officers. So we'll start with the men. You mentioned that already. Um, the sailors are, in theory, in a much better position to face the peace than soldiers, because sailors have a marketable skill. You can get a job on a merchant ship doing what you were doing in the Navy. Um, unfortunately, there are 100,000 fewer jobs at sea after 1815 than there were before 1815, because that's about how many men were in the Navy were suddenly gone. And the merchant Marine does not suddenly expand by 100,000 jobs. So the likelihood is that you're gonna be unemployed. If you can get a job on a merchant ship, uh, you're likely to be underpaid and in a very sort of precarious situation where at the drop of a hat, you could be removed and replaced by somebody else because there's just so many people uh, available. So um, sailors have a tougher time than you would expect them to have, given that it, unlike a soldier, at least they have a marketable skill. Um, they try to take matters into their own hands, so they shut down ports and strikes, they demand wage uh, raises, they demand fixed ratios of manning to tonnage, so that if your ship is, say, 100 tons, you have to have X number of men serving on that ship, so you can't, merchant uh, owners couldn't skimp on the size of the crew. 
it doesn't work very well, to be honest. They get some gains, but they're usually very temporary, and then they quickly revert it back. So the story for the men is is a is a grim one. The reason there are no more jobs at sea is because the navy has cut dramatically back, as you as you mentioned. So um, the idea that the Admiralty has for the post eighteen fifteen navy is to have a hundred ships of the line available, but only maybe a handful deployed at any time. But you mothball the vast majority and have them ready to go if you needed to fight another fight. So a lot of latent power, but not a lot of actual deployed power. Uh, what actually ends up happening in practice is that. Um, it's really hard to find 100 ships of the line that are still good enough to go to sea. The dockyards get quickly overwhelmed by the return of the fleet. So the dockyards, their funding gets cut, and then they're told, by the way, you need to dramatically reshape the fleet for peacetime and mothball these ships, and they don't have the manpower to do that. Uh, when they start to pull up some of the planking on ships that have been built during the wars very quickly to get them to sea, to protect the sea lines of communication, do all that, they discover a lot of the ships are rotten, so they have to be either condemned and broken up, or they have to be totally rebuilt. Um, so the ship situation is is really bad, and um, it's one of the other surprising points that I found in doing the research for the book was that this is the Pax Britannica, supposedly this is the Royal Navy enforcing a global peace. In the 10 years after the war, the Royal Navy is not capable of doing that. And in fact, when sabers start to rattle in the United States and say, hey, we're going to go to war again, the United States threatens to build 10 ships of the line. They're going to have a whole new Navy that's going to fight the British on the high seas in the next war. Basically, the, the word from the Navy is, we don't want any part of that. Please make this go away. And so the world's first arm control agreement comes in 1818 when the U.S. and Britain decide, hey, let's tone it down. We're Neither one of us wants to build a new Navy. We're both broke. So let's just uh, uh, take a step back. And that's a really important in, in world history, really. It's the rush to go arms uh, control agreement in 1818. And that diffuses attention with the United States. But that's not from a position of strength. That's from a position of... I. I can't afford this, right? Uh, or another example would be, um, it's not until the mid 1820s that the Navy actually reaches the goal that it had set for itself in 1815 of X number of 100 ships of the line ready to go. And then finally, uh, in the uh, Caribbean, during the um, Spanish-American revolutions, the um, there's a real big piracy problem because you've got all these demobilized sailors that have uh, come out of the various European navies. You've got these uh, republics that are declaring their independence and fighting the Spanish. You got the Spanish who are trying to keep a lid on the whole thing. And the result is this chaos in the Caribbean that causes uh, all the British merchants who are operating it out of the Caribbean to periodically get stopped and taken by various pirates and privateers and people are operating there. And they're screaming back in London to say, where's the Navy, like help us. And the first Navy that arrives to do anything about it is the US Navy. And that just pisses them off more because they're like, what's the point of all this? If it's the Americans coming to help, you don't want that. Where is the Royal Navy? And so the Royal Navy sort of reluctantly says, okay, fine, and sends some ships out in the 1823-24. So the story of the Navy in the decade after 1815 is not the story of the Pax Britannica of, of these uh, great fleets uh, spending the globe. It becomes that. I'm not arguing that, that, that it doesn't get there, but the, certainly the 10 years after the war are a lot uh, rougher around the edges. Um, and then the final thing is the officers. As you mentioned, officers, yeah, there's no jobs. Uh, the unemployment rate for junior officers after 1815 is 90%. So there are no jobs. Uh, it makes you feel good to be an academic, honestly. So uh, the 90% the unemployment rate is, is such that I think um, junior officers who have to survive on half pay and don't have any money, they're in a tough spot. If you're a senior officer, you basically treat this as, well, that's the end. It'll be the end of my career. I need to get as many rewards as I possibly can before it's over. 
pin all the buttons on, get my portrait painted, and then basically say, I'm good to go. I'll live on my prize money and my half pay. If you're a junior officer, that's a tougher, that's a tougher pill to swallow. Um, so, you know, they suffer for a good 10 to 15 years after the war before there's enough of an uptick um, to, to get them back to sea. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm loving this interview. I'm just going to pause and, and say that right here, right now. I haven't laughed this much uh, during an interview in a heck of a long time. Um, I'm loving the dry wit that's coming through all the way through this. Um, let's let's talk about something that, that that is less amusing though, and that is the the physical demobilization process. Um, you you want me to make jokes about sad people now? Is that the <laughs> It's not the best kind of selling point for a show, is it? You know, you know, we, we're pointing fun at um, at yeah. people in in you know economic hardship. This it's, it's is suddenly sounding very very topical, isn't it? Um, let's talk about the, this process. What does it actually involve? Because I, I'm trying to piece together what I have read about this, and in some sense, I get this feeling that there's a little bit of money that gets shoved in a, a soldier's face, which is right you know use this to get back to wherever you want to go um and thanks very much goodbye um but <laughs> is that literally it um how how does this work is this very much a kind of a sense of you know you you do your old pay that we didn't kind of give you during the peninsula war so you'll get that as well or is it kind of well that was a long time ago you know you've probably forgotten about that so um here's a few shillings thanks for coming um we don't want to be seeing you again is it very much sort of cut all the ties there's the gate get out and don't 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 darken our door again so uh half the book is about the navy roughly so i'll start with them uh navy is uh simpler here um sailors did what they'd always done when they left the ship so demobilization 1815 there's just more of them um and it one of the things i point out in the book is that it doesn't all happen in 1815 it happens there's actually some early demobilizations way back in 1812 they the withdrawal of the Baltic fleet during the Russian campaign. They don't need a fleet in the Baltic anymore because of, of that. So a bunch of ships come home and and, and get uh, paid off then. But a lot of those men get redeployed to North America. Anyways, demobilization happens slowly from about 1814 properly through 1817, 18 for the Navy. So there's a couple years of this, but basically your ship comes back into port. You get a pay ticket from the purser on the ship and that says you're owed this amount of money. You take it to the nearest pay office. Uh, the pay office probably doesn't give you sufficient hard cash. So if you really want coins in your pocket, then you can sell the ticket to a uh, basically a loan shark at a discount and get your, 
loan shark is maybe the wrong word, but you can sell it to one of the various hangers on around port who enjoy separating sailors from their money. You sell the ticket at a discount, you get hard cash and you go to the brothel. That's what sailors have done for uh, for centuries and 1814, 15, 16 isn't really any different. If your wife managed to meet you when your ship came into port, perhaps you don't go to the brothel and perhaps you get your full pay and perhaps things go a little bit better for you and your family, but this is the, this is the caricature. Fair enough. Uh, press gangs aren't a problem after 1815 either, so you don't have to worry as much about that. The press gang is only legal in wartime, so you know you're not sort of skirting around trying to trying to worry about that sort of thing. Soldiers, okay, so soldiers, it's more complicated. Um, we can talk about the hospitals later. I think I'll, I'll focus for now just on how do you how do you wrap it up. So uh, first, you have to wait for your enlistment period to end, right? So that's the major difference between the navy and the army. The Sailors, uh, they signed up for the commission, not for the war. Or if they did sign up for the war, the war's over. So who cares? So off you go. Um, with soldiers, though, they've got actual enlistment periods. Um, seven years is the shortest. If you leave at seven and you didn't get extended or whatever, then yes, it's thank you for your service, goodbye. Um, if you get to 14, if you were a short enlistment uh soldier you could become eligible for a pension at 14 so we'll talk about that in a minute but most pensions didn't come into play until you'd serve for about 21 years which is more or less your working life so from the age of you know 18 to 20 until 40 um and you're probably pretty beat up at that point having been in the british army for the last 20 years you've seen some stuff so and you've walked some places so the um Separation was similar to the Navy. You went into the books and figured out, okay, how much money am I owed? Um, I do think that uh, conscientious regimental pay people did actually notice that you were owed money. And so you would get the money that you were owed. It's, it's, I don't think we should be so flippant as to say that basically they, oh, it was a long time ago, we're not going to give it to you. Um, but, you know, bookkeeping and this sort of thing is challenging. There's prize money that comes out of the Peninsular War too. So you get um, depending on how many different periods you've served in, you got X number of uh, pounds based on your your uh, time served, what rank you've been, all those sorts of things. So all these calculations go in. In the Army, more so than the Navy, there are a lot of deductions that come out of your pay for various pieces of equipment and food and things like that. So you do have to do a bunch of math to figure out, okay, I am owed this amount of money. And then you would go get the money. If you were, uh, most of this would happen at the regimental depot back in, in England. So if you were demobilized overseas, Usually, you probably had to sort of come back to the uh, to the regimental depot to get a lot of this sorted out. Um, there are some exceptions, but that's that's the usual pattern. Um, and then, yeah, you're right. So if you're from Scotland or Ireland, you get a little bit more money to get home. And if you're from England, you're just given a, a, a normal amount. So England and Wales. Um, so yeah, you're given some money and told uh, goodbye. If you have a pension, that means that you are now interacting with a different but related bureaucracy which is the hospitals. Um, and I think that's, uh, I'll, I'll stop there for a second, but the hospitals are another complicated system. I mean, that's exactly where I was going to go next with this. So, you know, I'm just going to let you carry straight on. Um, okay. I mean, you've got Greenwich and Chelsea, right? Is it better with the hospitals? I I've never quite understood, and this is purely because I haven't read into it, but I've never kind of understood the, the pension system. There seems to be this inclination to sort of throw some money at you if you're an out pensioner. Yeah. But, but does that mean that you also get sort of medical aftercare or is the kind of the hospital 
notion just well you go to this place you get assessed and then they decide how adverse you've been impacted by your service hospitals are about money more so than they're about care the in resident pensioner population of both hospitals is tiny so tiny is an exaggeration but there are 2700 out pensioners sorry resident pensioners at greenwich in 1815 there had been a about 250,000 men who'd served in the Navy over the course of the war. So that's a rough estimate. So 2,700 resident pensioners, 250,000 people who had served in the Navy. Uh, it's a it's a, it's a a small population. I don't have the numbers for Chelsea in front of me, but it's similar that the resident pensioner population is very small. The out-pensioner population is large. So especially for the Army. So again, I'll sort of run through the Navy real quick because it's actually simpler. Um, Lots of people could be eligible for a pension in the Navy, especially if you were wounded in, in your service. But um, the pensions usually kicked in when you had to when you prove to the board at Greenwich Hospital, I can't do my job anymore because of injuries I suffered while in naval service. That's actually a pretty narrow thing to have to prove. Also, because a lot of sailors are going to leave the Navy when they're 25 years old and they're perfectly healthy, more or less, for a 25-year-old in 1815, right? So... Um, you, you haven't necessarily been worn down by 21 years in naval service the way the standard army pensioner was. So in the army, a lot more people are eligible for pensions because in order to be eligible as a percentage of the population, in order to be eligible for a pension, you had to have served for this long. And so as a percentage of all the soldiers and all the sailors, far more soldiers got pensions than sailors did because most sailors just tried to go back to sea or do whatever it was that they could do and didn't want to deal with all the bureaucracy of trying to prove that, oh, that time I sprained my ankle, that meant I couldn't do my job. Like, that's just, it's not going to happen. It's not worth the effort to do all that. So uh, to give a sense, like, there's about, I think, four times as many out pensioners at Chelsea Hospital in the post-war years as there are at Greenwich. So it's like 80,000 to 20,000 ballpark uh, in those years. So if you're an out pensioner, yeah, you get a, a, a periodic payments. Your pension was based on an assessment of your disability and your time served and whether you had actually been a good soldier or, uh, or not. So if you had a disciplinary record that could really hurt your ability to get a pension, uh, which is something that you might want to look into uh, one day. There's one study that's been done of pensioners in the first half of the 18th century that shows that of all the out pensions granted by Chelsea Hospital, zero of like 25,000 pensions had a disciplinary record. Now, perhaps that's some creative bookkeeping, but nevertheless, a clean record was really important. Some sort of disability would really help increase the, the, the pension. But if you wanted to sort of throw an average number out there, I'd say a shilling a day was about what you could maybe get. That's about 18 pounds a year. So in uh, in terms of spending money, that's like drinking money. That's not living money. So what the best case scenario from the government's perspective and from the pensioner's perspective, frankly, was to um, go through all the paperwork of leaving the army, get your pension sorted out, then go back home, get a job, and every quarter go to the nearest pay office and get drunk. And then that was your pension. So like that, there's a, some memoirs about this too. It's, it's uh, fantastic. That was the ideal. In practice, you can't live on 18 pounds a year. So you're going to have to do something else, but you might not be able to either because of your disability or because the job market's so bad or for whatever reason. So the pension system left a lot of people expecting one thing and getting another. It left a lot of people not able to make ends meet and needing to figure out how to 
uh, how to do that uh, pretty quickly. So um, that I think that explains most of the pension system as I understand it. That's absolutely perfect. Um, and it leads me directly to where I'm going next. I mean, it's almost like we planned this, isn't it? Um, and it's about adjustment to civilian life. And rather than go straight in with, with where I was planning to go with this, I just want to pick up on what you're saying there about the shortfall. Because the fear, certainly within society more broadly, is that you demobilise, you get a spike in crime. Um, because you've got all of these people who are suddenly short financially and they can't get a job because of the nature of the market and so well, what are you going to do you, you you've got to find a way to um to survive and of course we know full well that in the army there is this culture of if you haven't got what you need you're just going to have to find ways to acquire it um so is there this kind of big spike in crime and and are there any sort of efforts to offset this problem is there any kind of evidence of leniency that you come across or is this very much sort of, well, you know, no, you, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, you stole. And so therefore, you're, you're going to end up um, taking the consequences. It's always funny to talk about a book after you've written it. And you think, oh, that would have been a good question to ask. <clears throat> I did not uh, ask the leniency question. I did look at the spike in crime briefly. Uh, there is one. Um, the number of cases that come before Old Bailey, I think, doubles in the five years after the war. So that, that seems to be real. Um, a lot of them are crimes of poverty for all the reasons that we've just talked about. So that that tracks. I think the um, the other thing to sort of piece together here, right, is that um, the misery that the soldiers endure who are demobilized is going to depend on enormous numbers of circumstances, including are they from an agricultural uh, community? And were they agricultural laborers before they were soldiers? And is that what they're going back to do? If so, then the thing that's going to matter most to them is the eruption of Mount Tambora in 1815, which causes a year without a summer in 1816, and a typhus epidemic in Ireland. So that could be one source of the misery that, that they're going through. Um, if they are sailors, maybe they're lucky and they got a job on an East Indiaman and off they went and, and off they go. Or maybe not. Maybe they weren't able to, to make that, that meet. So there's a lot of flexibility in sort of how all this works. But in taking a sort of 30,000 foot view, there's a spike in crime. There is uh, widespread misery. The job market's terrible, especially in the aftermath of Tambora, which is the largest eruption in recorded history. Though every time I say that, I read about another volcano that someone else has found that it's, that it's bigger. But it was a big explosion, bigger than Krakatoa. That's the one everybody thinks about. It's bigger than that. But um, yeah, it caused a year without a summer in 1816 that caused widespread misery. And that was that was really bad. So uh, it was horrible, you might even say. I mean, that's kind of apt, um, isn't it, in terms of, but, but also really kind of unlucky, right? You know, you uh, the one point when you really don't need something like that to happen, it's it's literally the worst moment in, in the last sort of 20 odd years for an event like that to happen. I mean, yeah, it's never good, obviously. Well, no. Uh, but you're right that flooding the agricultural labor market in Britain and then having the harvest fail is a deadly combination. Uh, the global weather events that came out of this were really uh, spectacular. So where I am in New England right now got six inches of snow in June. So uh, yeah, really awful stuff. That's not good for anybody's harvest, right? So um, yeah, Tambora is definitely a part of the story and, and definitely part of the, the the background to it all. And yeah, it is just one of those, you know, acts of nature that you can't you can't account for. So a really kind of knotty little question next. Um, mental health and the impact of war. 
Now, this is where the big challenge, I guess, becomes separating what we now understand about mental health with what the appreciation was and more crucially, perhaps wasn't um, back then. But do we have indications of the impact, which is going to have been there? You, You only need to pick up one memoir to see the horror of what people witnessed on a daily basis. But also, do we have any signs of how people tried to deal with that? Uh, so you've covered a lot of the, the key points, which is great. No, uh, that's that's really uh, helpful. So yeah, you can't diagnose PTSD in 1815 because the word doesn't mean anything to them. Um, nevertheless, there was clearly trauma in the war, and these are people who are in a post-traumatic situation, so there were obviously effects of it. Um, the way that they talked about it, either in memoirs or at the time, and the sources for this are these tricky memoirs that you have to be really careful with as you as you parse through them. Uh, would be uh, melancholy. That's usually the word that you that you'd see a sort of a lingering sadness about whatever a, a sense that you're not yourself. And so you can see some manifestations of this uh, in some memoirs. So one of the ones that I spent some time with is a um, technically he's in a he publishes an anonymous memoir and he. In the late 1820s, he's still in service. He finally gets out of the army and he goes back home and he talks about how every stream reminded him of a different battle. And he sort of, he's clearly got the war in his head. Now he's writing this in the 1820s when he, in a sort of romantic capital R uh, context. So certainly that's influencing how he's perceiving things. But nevertheless, he says, you gotta believe him when he says, I saw this battle here. I remember this battle there. He decides at one point that he's uh, gonna get rid of an old oak stump that that's his task on the farm, right? He's going to, all right, I'm going to get rid of this thing. He says, well, I was in the army, so I have a marketable skill. Unlike those stupid other soldiers, I'm going to blow up the oak stump. So he gets some explosives together and tries to blow it up, which nearly kills him, of course. Uh, and all the people in town are muttering about this crazy guy back from the army. Like, what is he trying to do? This idiot, right? And so it doesn't really work. He eventually does get the, the stump out of there, but it's clearly that he's he's not feeling at home. And so he goes to visit his old regiment a couple months after he left. And he said, I immediately felt like I was at home. I felt like I was back in the place where I wanted to be. I regretted ever leaving the army. These are my, this is my family. This is my, this is my home. So that kind of nostalgia, which is literally from Odysseus, the uh, prototypical veteran, right? Archetypal veteran who's uh, coming back home. Nostos means homecoming. So this sense of like, I, I'm, I'm missing my home is clearing a lot of the memoirs even though they're filtered through this, this romantic lens. Uh, and then the melancholy of just sort of feeling like they're not quite able to ever make that, that adjustment. That's as close as we can get. I mean, I'm sure someone could do a, a better, more detailed study of it. I certainly was interested in the question, but it's just so tricky because of the distance and because the sources for it are memoirs not necessarily written contemporaneously and often with some sort of agenda about what they're trying to, so yeah. it. It was a real challenge, but that's as close as I got was just the sense of melancholy uh, on the one hand and then nostalgia and missing uh, their comrades uh, on the other. Yeah, I mean, it's the big challenge, right? You know, you said it yourself, you, not only have you got the distance, it's that thing of it's very hard to analyze somebody who's not in the room. Um, and sure, if you were able to invent a time machine, I'm sure we could we could find all sorts of, of things but um it's an incredibly hard thing to tap into and i know some people have sort of toyed with this idea of can you do a phd on 
equivalents or, or have you might want to label it um, on historic cases and actually haven't gone through with that process of applying to conduct the PhDs because it is so such a knotty kind of methodologically complex problem. Um, this is another tricky one. It's about reputation in the community. Um, I mean, there are two facets to this, right? Because on the one hand, look, this is this is the generation that won Trafalgar. This is the generation that won Waterloo. And boy, are those battles exalted in society. You've also got this whole thing of scarlet fever um, that some scholars have written about. You know, this idea, you love a man in uniform. And yet, people really couldn't give a monkeys um to, to put let's go with the polite version they couldn't give a monkeys about the troops when they actually needed help and the one thing that sticks in my mind here is the aftermath of Corinna, when moore's army lands back on the south coast and you've got these soldiers who were almost blind from fatigue completely dirty covered in rags um probably barefoot staggering through the streets and people are literally crossing over the road to not go near these soldiers and it's actually the sailors who turn around and, and provide the support and go, look, come on, buddy, let's let's get you to a, a tavern. Let's get you sat down. Let's get you something to drink um, and start that nursing process. So you've got these two kind of competing notions of don't come near me. You're a soldier and we don't consider the soldiers to be reputable. And yet also, well, you're the generation, you're, you're literally the people that vanquished Napoleon. Um, so how does all of that come together? Is there a reverence there or is it very much, well, you're you're not sort of the sort of person I want to associate with? So it's hard to draw big sweeping conclusions, but I'll do my best because, hey, why not? Um, sailors, I, I'm sorry to keep starting there, but um, they have a, a sort of clear through line here. Um, their reputation for profligacy, alcoholism, whoring, et cetera, like, yeah, none of that changes so what happens in the post-war years is that um an evangelical movement comes uh to see sailors as a uh, primary focus of their efforts and there's a big push to um start sailors homes in port cities to put floating chapels in a lot of the port cities that are there in attempt to try to steer sailors away from their lives of uh immorality and uh whatever you think about that, it was clearly an effort to um, try to improve the lives of sailors as they perceived that uh, to be the, the best way to do it. Um, and it, it clearly worked in some sense. It's, it's a thriving movement that lasted uh, through to today. There's actually a sailor's home in Newport that has owes its origins to that sort of thing uh, here in Rhode Island. So um, that's a long, that's got a long history. In the post-war period, this was seen as a particularly ripe time to be doing that sort of thing when sailors were in this difficult labor market in this uncertain time. So there are a lot more sailors ashore than there have been during the wars. Um, so I think with sailors, you can see uh, an attempt by some sections of um, of the of the community to to try to uh, improve their their lot. Um, but how is it? The sailor perceived after the war, well, people write books about this all the time. Uh, and, you know, Jack Tar, the image of him changes over time and is repurposed for political means. And I think it's the politics, really, which is the best way to answer your question, which is, um, I think your perception of a soldier or a sailor is going to be shaped probably first and foremost by your general feelings about the government as it, because they are in some senses representatives of that, right? The soldiers are very much literally in their red coats. And so loyalists 
members of the uh, population who saw the government as needing their support as it suspended habeas corpus and cracked down on uh, meetings of, uh, you know, more than 50 people and and all these other repressive acts, they're what do we call the six acts, right, they, they supported that, would see soldiers as the bastions of this, uh, the, the defense of this conservative regime. And so when a soldier walked around wearing his Waterloo medal, um, which would be something that they would uh, make sure to wear anytime they walked into a pub, you know, perhaps they're not paying for drinks, right? That's a good example of the Waterloo medal as a symbol of, I am I can be celebrated and touted in this context. In other cases, though, a soldier walks into a bar wearing a Waterloo medal, and they there's a, a scene in, in the book from a town, I think it's on the first anniversary of Waterloo, in which it's like a shot-for-shot shot remake of the scene in Casablanca, except that instead of the locals singing La Marseillaise and overshadowing the, the German anthem, um, it's the locals who then, like, riot at the soldiers who are there to celebrate Waterloo, and there's this this big clash in, in, in the pub, right? So um, this kind of uh, tension between those who are in favor of the government's crackdown on uh, post-war dissent and those who are part of the post-war dissent, I think is a good way to think about, you know, how you might feel about, about soldiers. So for example, if you're one of the 50,000 people, I think is the new number, 50,000 people who attended the meeting to hear Henry Hunt speak at St. Peter's Fields in Manchester in August of 1819, I suspect that when the soldiers showed up, you weren't like, oh, thank goodness the cavalry's here. Like it was a, you know, <laughs> so I, yeah, I think it's a, it's going to be a mixed bag, but I would filter through the lens of politics. And especially in this period after 1815, when Britain comes as close to revolution as it had in the 1790s. So um, it's, it's a really tough time uh, for, for the country. This is another really kind of lazy podcasting host question that I'm going to ask here. Um, and I, I have disparaged it, but people who sort of go, what were your sources for using this? Because it is one of those, it's usually a question that you throw in there when you're struggling to find other questions to ask. In this case, I promise that's not what's happened because this is, I was, I basically put myself in your shoes and tried to work out how the hell do you go about trying to piece all of this together? And so in effect, what I'm asking is a deeply selfish question, which is that I want to know how you managed to do it. So I'm going to make the listeners listen to how you did it. But you've got lots of different strands to this. And yeah. it's always the thing that bugs me in terms of people sort of disappearing post-war. The army's very good at record keeping when it's got people under its command. And then the second they're kicked out, they disappear into the ether. And I'm always interested in how we kind of shine lights on people's experiences when they're not kind of in a literally regimented organization. So how, how do you do it? So it's obviously complicated. I'll try to make this simple. For this particular question of how do you trace veterans after they've left service, pension records are a good place to start, but I found them to be overwhelming. So the pension record, if somebody wanted to do a prosopographical study of pension records, they could do a dissertation on them because there's vast amounts of data in there about um, all the things that the veterans had to tell the bureaucracy to get their pension. So periodically they'd have to check in to say, who are you, where are you from, where are you living, all this other stuff. So you can trace many biographies of people through the pension records if you wanted to do that. It would be an astonishingly large and complex task. I chose to dip into them rather than to, to treat those as my primary uh, uh, sources. 
memoirs and letters are more easily accessible, certainly, and provided more of the sort of color that I was looking for. Memoirs are tricky, uh, but it turns out there are so many of them. It's both. So Matilda Grieg has a great new book about uh, the evolution of memoirs over the course of the 19th century. And I think she and I looked at three memoirs that were the same. So there's just so many that like she looked at one set of memoirs that answered these questions. And I looked at a totally different set of different memoirs. And that's not one is better or worse. It's just that there's so many available that you can probably, you know, I found I could eventually find ones that talked about what happened after 1815. Because the other problem I ran into when I went to look at memoirs was that so many of them were like, and then I went home, dash, period. Like, okay, well, that was not quite what I was looking for here. So the, how do you actually get, you know, past the, the demobilization period and get a story about how that went and then what happened afterwards? That narrowed my searching in memoirs to ones that actually did that, which of course biases all of my conclusions about this because why were they talking about them? Uh, and, and yeah, but this is what I had to work with. And the pension records, like I said, were a different book that could answer different questions and if someone wants to do a PhD on that one day, I'm sure you could do some fantastic. It's like War Office 25, I think. A lot of them have been digitized, and so they're actually available uh, from the National Archives website. But they're they are a massive uh, tranche. But I guess to take a step back, like so, that was how I was trying to answer the veteran question after the war. But the book, the the, the point of the book was to look at veterans, and. So my research question was, what happened when soldiers and sailors came home? That's what I tried to keep coming back to in every chapter. How is this chapter trying to answer that question? And it turns out that what happened when soldiers and sailors came home, the first part of the question is actually the when. When did they come home? And so to tell that story, I had to tell this strategic story of the end of the wars to try to figure out when did regiments come home? When did ships come home? Why were they sent home when they did? And that drove the first part of the book. So the first part of the book doesn't do a lot with memoirs at all. It's really mostly about how do you get, how do you end these giant wars and how do you bring people home and when did you do that? And what about the people who didn't go home? What about those regiments that went on to the empire or the ships that stayed deployed or, or, or whatever? So that was part one. The second part is about the experience of the veterans after the war. So what happened when they came home? And some of those chapters are driven by memoirs. Some of them are driven by things like, you know, looking really carefully at the strikes in Newcastle in 1815, as compared with the strikes in Newcastle in 1819 for for sailors. That's that's one uh, place that you can uh, look at in the book. Or there's a bunch of uh, veterans who go to South America, right? Who who go to fight in the uh, uh, wars of independence down there. And so there's a chapter on sort of veterans that that don't come home and the veterans that go back out into the empire. Uh, there's settlers in Canada and settlers in Australia. There's this, for some reason, somebody somewhere thinks that soldiers would make good settlers, which is manifestly not true. They are, it turns out you send soldiers out into the wilderness and they're like, well, I'm pretty good at being a soldier, but I don't know the first thing about farming. And that's kind of what you need to know when you're out there and doing that. So uh, Australia and Canada have all these programs to bring veterans out there to give them some land and they end up canceling all the programs in the 1830s. It's like, well, that was that was a waste of time. So uh, there's some couple good books on that that I was able to read. So some of it's secondary stuff, some of it was primary stuff. Uh, but yeah, there's not one answer. I think if somebody wanted to rewrite my book and, and ask the same question, but in a different way, it would be get to the pension records and just dive in. And basically the concern would be, could you ever come back up for error? Or would you get into the pension records? And that would be that. Would be that. 
you would never be seen again. I mean, you've given people an, a brilliant indication of why I was completely justified in saying this book is important. We are going to get to a completely unashamedly vociferous plug for that book, because frankly, people, if you don't want to read this book after all of that, I don't know what's the matter with you. Um, but I, I've asked you a lot of very, very unpleasant and awkward questions over the course of this. So why break with tradition for this final one? Um, and it is, as I wrote it, I thought, you're an absolute git for asking this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The army and the navy, do they get it right? Or was there fundamentally no choice with this? Demobilization had to happen. The war was over. They don't know what aftercare is. So they were always going to do this. Or were there things that actually could have been done, even within the constructs of the time, that would have enabled um, at least some kind of easing of the, the challenges that these guys face when they get kicked out? So I think I classic interview question, I'm going to ask answer my own question rather than your question did, That's the, fine government, by me. Yeah, did the government get it right um so i don't think the government was operating in by this i mean lord liverpool's government which is a conservative tory uh some would say reactionary um government that you know liverpool's like the third longest serving prime minister in british history he, he was in office for a long time did he get it right? Did his, did, you know, Sidmouth and the other members of the cabinet get it right? Well, um, they're not operating in an intellectual space in which deficit spending to uh, improve the economic situation or to alleviate hardship was part of their intellectual toolkit. So it's hard to accuse them of getting that wrong. They certainly ran some risks that I think it's fair to ask whether they understood the risks that they were running uh, in terms of um, the threat of revolution. So they said the best policy here is to slash the services budget. Remember, 80% of the budget is de dedicated to the Army and the Navy and the debt incurred to fund the Army and the Navy. So if you slash the services budget, you're slashing the budget. They said, we're going to slash the budget. We're going to try to deal with the debt, the debt they were really worried about for good reason, uh, depending on how you do the math. Um, the debt to GDP ratio, GDP is a fuzzy number, but it, it works for this purpose, was 250%. So two and a half times the size of GDP was the debt, the public debt owed, uh, which is actually higher than it was in 1945. So if you're sitting in that in, in you know, in Westminster in, in 1815, thinking about that, I think, yeah, you gotta, you gotta worry about the debt. That is a big number. And you gotta slash the army and Navy budgets in order to deal with the debt. So that makes some sense. But this idea that basically getting the government entirely out of the economy and just letting things, letting the chips fall where they may, man, that's why they end up having to pass all these repressive legislative acts like the six acts, like the, you know, suspending habeas corpus and all this stuff, because that's exactly the kind of thing that could easily have backfired. And there are a couple of flashpoints, Peter Liu is the most famous, when you can see a different version of events result in a revolution. Properly, I mean, the Cato Street conspiracy in 1820 tries to assassinate the cabinet. They've been infiltrated by the Home Office, so it all fizzled and they were they were captured. But they were serious. I mean, they, they, it was it, historians struggle with the Cato Street conspiracy because it was kind of buffoonish and kind of silly, and the threat it's not clear was actually that that high. But on the other hand, like if it had worked, it only takes you know like one plan to get it right, and if it works, the entire cabinet's dead. Who knows what would have happened at that point? So I think the government ran a bunch of risks that they did and didn't understand and 
they got through it, but man, there were some close calls. Because they slashed the services budget, I don't think that asking the question whether the Army and the Navy got it right uh, is, I don't mean that your question was unfair, but I don't think it's fair to the services because what it's not clear what they were able to do, right? So I did look up some stats for this. So the Army and the ordnance budget combined in 1815 was about 50 million pounds. Okay, so that's a round number we can go with. In 1819, so four years later, it was nine million pounds. That's a haircut, right? That's 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 more than an eighty percent budget cut. That's not just like oh, we're gonna cut back a little bit. That's like you don't have an army anymore, right? The naval budget in eighteen fifteen was twenty three million pounds. In eighteen nineteen, it was less than seven million. So that's like a seventy five percent haircut. So this is real. Like we're talking about real budget cuts, not. Just, oh, we're just going to trim a little bit of fat here and there. This is, we are eliminating the force that won us the Napoleonic Wars. That is no longer the force that is going to be available for us to deploy in the post-war period. We're going to have to build a new one. So if you're in charge of the Army or the Navy, like, I, I don't know how you look at that situation and think, yes, my number one problem is the welfare of my ex-soldiers. I think you have to respond to that by saying, my number one problem is I don't have an army anymore. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? So those numbers really stood out to me as an indication of the ways in which the government approached the problem. And the problem they saw it was the debt. The only people that they were willing to go to bat for were the landed interest, of course, and that's where the corn laws come in. That's a protectionist measure to try to protect the uh, profits of large landowners. And that they passed in 1815 amid riots in London. The lifeguards got called out, people got shot. So they, they were in a, a difficult spot, but they made some choices that certainly uh, were politically controversial, shall we say, and ran some risks. I mean, that's a home run of an answer right there. Evan, I, I knew I was going to love this one. You did not disappoint in the slightest. Um, we get to that ever so slightly awkward point in the interview where I now ask you to plug your book as if what you've done for the last hour and 15 minutes isn't in itself a shining advert for the book. So pre-orders are open now, right? Um, so it's out June 30th. Where do people get it? Because I'm going to push people to go and get it from the publisher. Because, sure. you know, people, the usual story, that's how the the small royalties that um, authors actually make from this find their way back to the author when you go direct to the publisher. But also you've got a blog out. Yep. You're on social media. Give me chapter and verse on how people can stay up to date with what you're doing. So I think the podcast will have the information on discount codes. It can be used for free international shipping. Since if many of the listeners are not in the United States, then there'll be a, a discount code for that. Um, and that you can use at the publisher's website. But of course, you can buy it from any of the various uh, large booksellers. Um yeah, so I'm trying to blog about it to try to get a little bit of awareness about uh, what's happening. So it's uh, evanmwilson.substack.com, or you just look for War and Peace and Evan Wilson. It's called War and Peace. And I'm posting once a week, and I encourage you to sign up for an email. I'll email you on Monday mornings, and that'll be that'll be that. And hopefully you'll learn a little, a little bit more about the book then. Um, I would say that I think the book has a little bit of something for everyone. It's got some strategic uh, analysis of the end of the wars some of which I think is new, and I hope that people agree. Um, and then it's got this story of the horrible peace, of the of the misery that, that followed soldiers and sailors home um, after the wars. So 
that's what I'm uh, hoping that people will get out of the book. Yeah, it does ship in June. I think if you, it might ship in May in, in practice, but so somewhere in time, May or June would be good. Um, but I hope people enjoy it and tell me what they think. Thank you, Zach, for having me on. It's been great to talk. Um, and I, I don't know if I've sufficiently plugged it, but we'll leave it there. I, uh, I find this uh, uncomfortable on a several different levels, but nevertheless, uh, buy my book. It's great. That message is thoroughly endorsed. Um, folks, usual story. There's a description for every episode. Click the description where it says show more and you'll find details. I'm going to do direct links to the blog where you can buy the book. Um, it'll have uh, Evan's social media, Twitter handle, um, all of the stuff that you need to stay up to date on what's happening with this book. Evan, what a tour de force of an interview. I have chuffing loved this one. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. If you're a fan of the period, you can immerse yourself in a Napoleonic Wars pod universe, full of exclusive bonus episodes, a Discord server to chat with the wider Napoleonic enthusiast community. Yes, there is one. They're a lovely bunch of people too. There are also socials, the chance to request episodes, and even a course dedicated to the period. Head over to Patreon, the link is in the description, to find out more. Much love to all of my Patreon supporters. Bear in mind that if you want to enjoy a specific perk from a tier, like joining the monthly online course that I run, you can now edit your pledge to secure individual perks rather than the whole perk package. Drop me a message via Patreon or Twitter for more details. Shoutouts to my mentioned in dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Alexandra Leon, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramas, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, an anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Marcus Cribb, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schrager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, Ted Andrews, David Malinsky, and Stephen Gillen. The Admirals, David Priest, Rob Cotlin, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, Michael Guest, John Haynes, and Kate Walcom. The Marshals, Ger Brown, Roy Muir, Bob Burnham, Matt Bone, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Stephen Ashworth, and Sean Sullivan. The Emperors, there are two of them now, Graham Swidenbank and JC Kaiser. And the Legion de Scholars, Dan Hazelwood, David Maxwell, Liam Telfer and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.